I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Shira and the Princesses of Power. This is a show commissioned by Zach Malm, Carsten Immel and James Glass. And we decided we needed a wide range of voices from across the spectrum. So welcome to the show for the first time. Lauren Yeomans. Hello. Mel Curtis. Hello. Welcome back to the show. Colin of the Cinema Cephalopod. Hey, everyone. Holly Dotson. Hello. Maya Santandrea. For the honor of Grace Golf. And let us not forget the target demographic, Lyra Shaw. Hola. Sharon Shaw. Hello. And myself, Alex. She-Ra, Princess of Power, was an attempt for Filmation and Mattel to target girls and sell Masters of the Universe to them with the boys remaining from He-Man buying the ugly evil horde action figures. It ran for two seasons and 93 episodes from 1985 to 1986. And we already did a show on this and on He-Man back in 2016. She-Ra, Princess of Power, was, however, a very important show to a lot of Gen Xers and some millennials who discovered it late. The reboot was headed up by comic writer and Lumberjanes creator Noelle Stevenson. It began in November 2018, just 19 months ago, and ran for five exceptionally efficient seasons and 52 episodes culminating just as the man-babies who object to everything being made not for them were starting to move on. We're not going to talk about them. They're exhausting, and energy is precious, especially in 2020. Now we are here, following the glorious climax of Season 5, to talk about everything that happened across all 52 episodes, so full spoilers ahead. If you're wondering whether you should see the show, you probably should. It's really high quality and made of feels, and we're going to do this by going character to character, with the most integral first up being afforded the most time, and the ones at the end, if we have time left. So, if we spend too much time discussing Discussing Glimmer, we won't be able to give more than a cursory nod to Netossa and Spinarella. So that is it. That is the challenge to my guests. Can we all be succinct and keep this ramble light? Let's find out. And I'll start by tossing out Adora. Anyone can speak, try not to trample each other, and be aware that we have eight voices on this show, which is about enough for us all to talk for a minute each on this first major batch of seven characters. So we can talk for a minute and then move to the next person, if that makes sense. I will move us on when we hit our limit. I have to. There's 25 or so characters to talk about. So, Adora, what kind of person is she over the course of the five seasons? What made her that way? What details did you notice? Go for it. I love her intro, mainly in that she starts by basically losing her world and... Right after that, she finds the sword and basically gets this larger-than-life character, She-Ra, and has to battle with this, like, learning who she is after that betrayal, while also almost being drowned out by the character of She-Ra. It never forgets the fact that she was raised as a child soldier. We constantly see reminders of that in... Glimmer wakes her up and we find out she was sleeping with a dagger and 
she is exceptionally athletic, but constantly needs certain aspects of the world she was not exposed to explained to her. Well, I think she also, so much of her identity originally, um, you know, being the child soldier and everything is, is that she isn't important, that she's just one of a cog in, in this machine. But with She-Ra, she becomes this important hero and, and, and is valued by other people for the first time in her life. So she's sort of grappling with that, but also grappling with the fact that so much of her new identity is about her use to other people. I like that you talked about her used other people because to me that was um, the the aspect of her character that I found most um, humanizing and the one that I connected with in the sense that she's always very quick to be down on herself when she when she's at fault or not even when she's necessarily at fault. She tends to blame herself. And I thought that that was a very interesting choice for a protagonist because you so often have a protagonist that – is only cocky, is only sure of themselves, is only capable. And so I liked that they layered her with this external exceptionalness, but this underdeveloped sense of self-worth that she, of course, as she develops friendships and intimate relationships throughout the series, she's able to develop that and become strong not only on the outside, but on the inside as well. I agree very strongly with that. The um, That quality of always feeling like you have to prove yourself, always feeling like there's a, a bar that you have to jump, that's much more frequently given to like the Lancer character in a group scenario. So for it to be uh, in the person who is having to lead everybody with it not directly being connected to leadership but to self-worth... And the fact that we have those constant flashbacks, which is one of the distinct differences between this and the original series, which didn't have much investigation as far as uh, Adora's being brought up goes. I mean, obviously, we were introduced to the character with an explanation of where she came from. But then there's this big gap between the baby who was stolen from Eternia and the uh, almost adult woman who now gets to go out and become She-Ra. And I, I really appreciated the way this whole season uses um, memory and flashback and recordings to give that sense of history and legacy and the way it threads them all together is just impressive i do know one thing that happens on a regular basis is that they during all of the battle sequences they also have to deal with the struggles they need to go through before they're ready for the things they want to accomplish in the rebellion like on several occasions glimmer shira Adora, Bo, all of them are very self-conscious and scared. Like, Shira feels like she's going to lose her friends and she's going to lose because of her. Mm. It's going to fail because she missed a fatal flaw. And the success in the battles tends to then be a, an extension of whatever they've overcome in themselves. And Glimmer feels like she's going to be left alone by all of her friends and family, which is why it hits so hard when Angela dies. Mm. It's a heck of a leap forward, but we'll come to Glimmer soon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah. I think the the whole, the, the cool thing about Adora is that kind of her whole arc in the show is about her forming connections that she never had when she was younger and when she was with the Horde. And that includes regaining a connection with herself, really. So 
not only not only does she have to form connections with other people, but she has to reconnect with herself and she has to accept the fact that she can't always go it alone. That's kind of one of those things that with her influence from Shadow Weaver and from being on the the side of the baddies for so long, she's so used to having to go it alone. And the whole, I think one of the big themes of the show is really in Adora's search to find this, this element of herself that can actually rely on other people and doesn't always have to face everything by herself. A big part, especially of the later story, is Adora finally figuring out what she wants to do in life. That's a big thing that, that Mara talks to her about in that, that sort of weird sequence where Horde Prime shows up after, um, where she's saying, yeah, you want to sacrifice any, everything, but I tried to do what I did so that you wouldn't have to sacrifice everything. Um Exactly, where her 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 all her herself is is her self worth is based on what she can do for other people of the sacrifice for her friends and that love she gives her friends, but she doesn't realize her place in the world doesn't have to be as a result of doing things for other people. Exactly, and there is a place for her after this is all over, which I think is kind of cool. It's like Mara even reminds her right at the end, like there's something for you when this is over. Like you don't have to just throw your entire life away. Basically you don't have to make the ultimate sacrifice like you think you do, but there is actually something beyond this. And Adori even has that little moment of like where she sees what her future could be. And I thought that was just such a brilliant moment because it shows that, yes, you can actually have a life after this. Like, you're, it's, it's not over for you just because this mission is complete and just because you have kind of laid down your sword, so to speak. I think as well it follows on from um, the idea of the original series being um, quite a, a, a shaping event for uh, younger Gen X and, and older millennial girls. And the... Uh, the take that we we see here is sort of feeding into that slight trope that then overtook the uh, the the sort of sense of the weakling girl who can't do anything for herself. That there's this then there's then this movement from you can be the kick-ass female to you have to be the kick-ass female and this expectation of high performance and this constant going and going and going and you've always got to be the one to sacrifice everything if you want to be the hero. And in that way, I think it's great that there's actually... Um, the hero character sometimes can end up being sort of like a bland every woman or man or whatever, mm. um, whereas... Shira has a real conflict. Like, there's no question that, or Adora is badass and and can fight with you know the rest of them. But she has her own internal emotional conflicts that don't negate that in any way. And she has a lot of personality too. Like, there's not just this. She's not just an empty vessel, so to speak. She's uh, she's not um, she's not Johnny Template. She's not Gruff McMilitary. You know, she's um, she actually <laughs> to, to borrow a couple of terms. Uh, she you know she's got a sense of humor and there's a there's a real spark and a real life behind her. I one of my favorite moments from season one is when she's planning out the whole princess prom and she's got all of these little schematics and she's got a whole plan worked out and that's just that's just who she is she she's the list maker she has to have everything mapped out and of course once she actually gets there 
none of it goes according to plan and she suddenly has to improvise. And I love that they kind of keep those little details about her throughout the entire series. And that rolls right into the episode where everyone's trying to give in their plan and it turns into D and D. We watched those two episodes just to catch up just before this, we started recording. Those are essential. Plus you get the yeah. uh, retro costumes bit with uh, Bo. It's a little bit sad that Adora can't turn off. Her main skills, obviously having been honed in the Fright Zone, are, are in, in combat and tactics and planning. Um, but she is lacking in those social graces. And so it's kind of like you come out of this a really equipped fighter and now everyone else has to teach you how to people. Mm. It's That's her growth throughout the series. I love it. You know why that is, though? Because you can't plan other people. Yeah, Absolutely. Speaking of totally socially inept, uh, Catra, uh, <laughs> a absolute fan favorite with so many. Um, Holly, you requested uh, Catra first, so go for it. Uh, yeah, Catra is definitely the reason I got into the series. She's the one I identify most with. Uh, and even her design starts to speak about that immediately with the uh, very striking heterochromatic eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of talks of her dual nature, which is this face she puts out, which is uncaring and aggressive. And the little, like, lonely, sad child inside that just wants to, like, reach out for Adora or to make her place in the world. Um, and the colors, like, the fact that one is a shade of blue and one is a shade of yellow, the colors kind of associated with sadness and fear, which are clearly her like primary motivations through most of the series and uh while she ends up being this like foil for a lot of it i love that she gets a redemption arc it would have been pretty disappointing if she hadn't had that redemption at the end or if she had just died at the end it would have been really sad and kind of a shame if they hadn't kept her for everything that comes after. So I'm really glad that they didn't go down that route and they really did give her that redemption arc. Like you were saying, I feel like so much of her growth is centered in coming back from this emotional trauma that she's suffered throughout most of her life. And that's really what her arc is, is that she's been manipulated so much by shadow weaver, by Hordak, by so many of these authority figures in her life and her redemption really comes around to uh, healing from that process it's actually kind of lucky that we got uh, game of thrones last year showing us exactly how not to do a uh, redemption arc and uh we got uh, rise of skywalker with uh, exactly how to do it way too fast at the very very end well i think uh especially with uh with catra i think it her her trauma comes so much out of this cycle of narcissistic abuse mm-hmm. which might be more worth talking about with Shadow Weaver, who's definitely, like, the archetype of, like, a narcissistic parent. But especially for me, when I watched the show, I felt like I was, like, very triggered by friendships that I had when I was younger of of girls who were the similar a similar age as me who were constantly competitive with me and would constantly blame me or, like, build me up and then tear me down and, and make my success be a threat to them. And you see that, like, her whole character thing is that she blame everything that's wrong with her life is because of Adora. She never actually takes any responsibility for how she treats people and how she acts for people. It's all because of the pain that Adora has caused. Well, I think it's important that she hasn't been given the tools to accept responsibility. And, I, and so 
in the face of abuse, yes, she's she's very keen on recognizing it, but something that made me very sad for her, and not sad in a, oh, this is a weak character kind of way, it was directly the opposite. I was very connected with her because there's a sense of her not being able to connect to what is abuse and what isn't abuse because it's blent together because there were so many moments in the show where adora or you know any mostly adora but other characters would reach out to her scorpia also um would would extend you know behaviors that were very i think to somebody who's been given the tools to accept uh you know compassion or any kind of innately positive emotions they could recognize it because they've been given the tools but she can't and so whenever these things happen and she rejects them either by anger or by showboating or you know by using her position in power with the horde it 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 creates a dynamic for a character like this which is definitely not strictly antagonist so anybody who is saying that they were surprised by what happens with Catcher at the end, I'm like, I, I just don't think you were watching the show with the with open eyes. I mean, I think maybe I'm not judging them, but I feel like it was there from the very beginning that this was a possibility for her. Mm-hmm. I think she's a fantastic example of what, for me, is one of the main strengths of the structure of the show, which is that the the plot and the events and the things that happen are primarily backdrop. They are there to provide context and stimulation for the interactions between the characters. And it's through those interactions that all the character growth occurs, which is how it is in real life. If you think about it, you can't grow as a person if you aren't um, interacting with somebody else. There's all sorts of things that you can learn just for yourself. But until you take them out into the world and start bringing them into contact with other people, they're they're either um they don't necessarily serve a purpose or they don't um you can't really develop and hone them until they have practice at, at being with other people and um everything that catra is to me is all shaped by the the people that she has those interactions with as you say primarily with shadow weaver and we'll uh, probably talk about that a little bit when we get to shadow weaver herself but um, but yeah, she's she's such a a strong and, and sort of headstrong person. You don't get the impression really that she intentionally shapes herself to other people. And in fact, she accuses Adora of being a people pleaser and implies that that's the exact opposite of her. But ultimately, she really does define herself by how other people are with her. There's a bit which really defines Catra and Catra's arc. Uh, it's just a, almost a throwaway comment, but it's incredibly observant from Scorpia, where I can't remember the exact circumstances, but Catra is happy. And I think it's because they're away from the Horde and Scorpia is angling for, let's maybe not go back. You're actually happy here. And I can't remember. And then she says, I can't even remember the last time I saw you like this. And then you realize and are made really aware as soon as she goes back to the Horde how angry she is, how bitter she is, how lonely she is. And just just that one little exchange between them and, and Scorpio's disappointment, this might be somewhat about Scorpio as well, just really just calls attention to and highlights how Catra make, makes things worse for herself. Uh, something that I always think back on when I watch the show is in the first episode... Before Adora, you know, encounters Glimmer and everyone and gets the sword, uh, 
Catra and Adora have this conversation where Catra acknowledges that the Horde is bad, mm. but is that's the only life she knows. So it, I always found it really strange that she wouldn't want to move to the other side, but she always is sabotaging herself and going back to the things that just make her more angry. And she goes back to more and more power. She wrests it out of Hordak's control and, and pretty much just pushes him down and goes, I'm in charge now. And she gets everything she could ever possibly want, and she gets more angry, more sad, more lonely. It's, it's an excellent uh, display for mm-hmm. kids of maybe consider carefully your aspirations. Mm. Don't pursue Exactly. That's kind of one of the other main... Yeah, that's a, another one of the main themes of, I think, the entire show is the more you try to gain power within this broken system, the more it corrupts you and the worse you're going to feel. So Katra's whole arc is breaking herself away from this idea that she has to be she's got to be the next best villain she's got to always beat the next person she's always got to undermine somebody else's authority and get on top where that's not really that's not really going to work it's a very very bad environment for her i feel a lot of catra's trying to rise through the horde is actually her almost taking um adora's initial aspirations uh because she felt betrayed that they had this plan to like basically go up in the horde and then Adora essentially like just leaves and one eighties and she's left there in trouble, like holding the bag, so to speak. And then she takes that and tries to run with it and prove that she can be a better Adora than Adora. Lyra? One thing that I found is that She's really angry because she knows she couldn't have done any of this unless Adora left. Mm. And she feels like the it's putting on the fact that the only reason that she was kept alive as a child was because Adora wanted her there. And now that Adora isn't there anymore, she it was filled with terror and anger. Mm. Yeah. So her position is very insecure when Adora's not there. Mm. And I think you can especially see that in the first episode, she shows up late to training and she's kind of almost portrayed as a kind of the slacker of the team. But then later on, we get the flashback where it shows, no, she was always trying really hard to beat Adora and was in tears when she couldn't. Okay, uh, Glimmer and Mel asked for Glimmer first. Yeah, so... Glimmer was a character I attached to immediately because I also had an overprotective parent. And I think it's interesting that so much of her um, experience in the early seasons is trying to get to a place where her mother trusts her and respects her. And then once her mother is gone, it's, okay, now what do I do? How do I fill what she left for me? And I was always fascinated with the fact that one of the first times we see her fight, she's kind of indiscriminately throwing sparkles in every direction in a panic, whereas by the end, she's very confident and solid and knows what she's doing in those situations. Well, especially early on, I feel like she's const- like she is constantly asking her mother for more responsibility um, but not actually sort of taking the steps necessary to get that responsibility. Like she doesn't show a plan. She doesn't, you know, try to find ways to, you know, negotiate that. She just, she just sort of recklessly runs off and does whatever she wants. 
and then spends the entire time terrified oh god what if i mess this up what's my mom gonna do i feel like one of the defining characteristics um for glimmer is more than any of the others apart from possibly froster is her age and she she gives the impression of being slightly younger than um most of the others so if they're maybe about sort of 15 16 she's maybe 13 14 and she seems to be just at that stage of development where we're kind of we do this thing as toddlers where we kind of move away from our parents in in rubber band stretches to bounce back again to where it's safe and then try again to get a little bit further and then we go through a more extreme version of that development when we hit our teenage years so she's in that push pull between trying to kick away from her mother and gain her independence and prove that she can do things and be trusted with things on her own but at the same time panicking that her friends aren't providing her with as secure a safety net as she feels like she maybe needs which means that in the earlier seasons where Angela is still there she's doing a lot of bouncing backwards and forwards um, which is kind of neatly um, symbolized by the teleportation actually Mm. Um, but then after Angela's gone that rubber band effectively snaps she doesn't have to pull that anymore and you kind of get this this aching sadness in her that seems to go beyond grief and extends into who am I now? If I don't have my mother to kick against, what defines me and the direction I'm moving in? Which is the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think she, you know, she spent all that time wanting this responsibility and then suddenly she has it and she doesn't like it at all. Uh, when I think of Glimmer, I'm always reminded of the quote that's like, uh, you know, the people that don't seek leadership but have it thrust upon them and then find they wear it well uh, really applies. And there's also this theme of you learn that they share the runestone, uh, her mother and her, and so it always feels like she's not quite operating at full capacity until her mother is gone, and that's a horrible loss, but she gains a strength from it too. One thing that I noticed does happen later on in the series is that when Shadow Weaver becomes a prisoner, she becomes the closest thing that Glimmer can relate to, and it's uneasy how calm she is. Hmm. She's like a surrogate mother to her a little bit, especially because she's willing to teach her so many things that Angela was, was not willing to teach her because she didn't think she could handle it. Mm. In a sense, she sort of becomes this connection to her father because she was her father's teacher as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a a little detail about Glimmer. This is not for anything, but just a detail about her design that I noticed that I really liked in the earlier seasons where she, you know, her shoulders are exposed. She's got these little like wings right on the backs of her shoulders, Mm -hmm. like almost like little tattoos. And I thought, always thought that was a cute little detail. It's like, oh, look at that. She's got little wings on, on the backs of her shoulders. I think that's really cool. Illustrative of her mother's wings, which she's going to grow up to inherit. I feel like design-wise, her change from like the beginning of the series to the end shows yeah. her character more than probably any other in the series. Yeah, her redesign in the later seasons is really, really cool. She ends up looking a lot more like her mother, but... It, it really shows how much she's matured over the course of the first episodes into the later ones. I loved how they managed to uh, to redesign her and give her clothes that suited her figure in a way that 
I mean, I like, I love the fact that Princesses of Power is filled with different body types rather than everyone being like. It's it's particularly ironic since this stems from He Man, a toy line wherein they were like, hey, we could just get the same body and put slightly different arms and legs on them, and then we could just like well, this one stick a raccoon head on him. Um, <laughs> sorry, skunk. It was a stink or. Um, and then, like, even the, the girls in She-Ra in the original series were all pretty much identical, and they, they had dolls and action figures of them that were, again, like, it was for being able to, you know, churn them out at ease a... Ease of reproduction. Uh, yeah, ease yeah. of reproduction. But, um... <laughs> and so, ironically, so few of them had childbearing hips. But, um... <laughs> sorry. It was the word. Um, but, but then there's loads of girls of different body sizes in this. And with young Glimmer always wearing big boots and, and, and the cycling short type, you know, outfit of that first one and the hair, you know, she's actually still got the same body type, but she looks like a woman from season four onwards. Also, the fact that the hair is slightly swept to one side rather than being symmetrical uh, you know, gives her a sense of not being balanced, but at the same time, the appearance of elegance. Windswept. Yeah. Glimmer is one of my absolute favorite characters that... You know, she's got this uh, new uh, leadership role and she would absolutely trade it back for her mother in a heartbeat. I like that Glimmer has to learn how to lead too. Because Angela says at, well, her hologram or ghost, I'm I'm not sure, Um, a figment of Angela says that you are always ready to lead. And I I very much get that from from Glimmer, and that probably, I would imagine, contributes to her frustration early in, you know, the show where she's not able to lead, but yet she, she takes the steps. And one of her defining characteristics, of course, is that she's one of the bravest on the show, and she's able to take those leaps forward. But they're not always the right ones. I mean, in season, I believe it's four or possibly three, she makes a big mistake in, uh, in terms of trying to harness the, the power of the planet, and she goes too far. And I think in a lot of scenarios along the way, as we, as we spend more time with her, she does put her friends and her people in danger because she doesn't lead well. But I think that's important because predominantly she does lead well, but she's not perfect. And that's, I think, a conceit of the show is that you can be amazing, you can have powers, you can lead with good intentions, but you have to be careful and purposeful in your actions. And you see that in the show. And and when she's very upset towards the end after they've saved her from Horde Prime, it's very clear that um, she's remorseful and that she's, she's learned for the future. In the at the end of season five, when Natasha's going around talking about everyone's uh, weaknesses, she says that Glimmer's weakness is having a huge ego and also being horribly insecure at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an offshoot of of her mom also because Angela was always so cautious and always so protective, and uh, Glimmer is so willing to just throw everything at a problem and just go full force without any sort of you know without any sort of caution whatsoever and it's a good thing she's willing to try things she's willing to uh, do some of the more difficult things that people like "Uh, i don't know about this so she's willing to take chances but i think her arc more than anybody else's is really kind of connected with this 
you know, we, we got to restore balance. We got to restore balance. Well, Glimmer needs to find balance as well. She has to take a little bit of that caution and that protectiveness from her mother and balance it out with her own impulses to just go straight in without a plan and to just try anything. Okay, I'm going to go first on Bo. Uh, any, any more last things on Glimmer? Well, this would be Glimmer and Bo. Uh, I okay. feel like they, especially early on, because Glimmer and Bo basically have to be the uh, like, expulsor of narrative, you know, explain the world. And I think they do that really well and naturally. Absolutely. my I, I particularly like Bo because I have a, a deep affection, especially now, with any male characters, especially surrounded by strong female characters, that are happy playing support but are assertive. It confounds the idea that a man is being entirely subservient, just being supportive. We need many more examples of this. It takes away from that kind of black and white, hyper-masculinized, you are either dominant or you are submissive. There is nowhere in between, when, of course, there's loads of positions in between. Yeah. I do have two points on Bo that I would like to mention. Mm -hmm. The first one being that he's the person that will help others to help himself. Like, when Entraptor goes, he tries to fill her space so that he feels like, others can be at ease which puts him at ease and when he can't do that he panics okay cool and what was the other thing the other thing was he he can't i don't know how to phrase it but it's to it's involving with his two dads the fact that he doesn't want to disappoint them which will put him at ease but helping other people more will put him more at ease and he's tied between the two so he tries to do both and when Adora and Glimmer come he has to juggle he has to juggle the entire thing which more panicking so having multiple people around him he feels that pressure and expectation um, from multiple different directions Following up on the idea of Bo's relationship with his two dads, uh, there's clearly the episode in this where it's the allegory of coming out, and he does come out as a freedom fighter to his parents. And I love that this is the allegory they go with, uh, partly because it's a really dangerous one. And, you know, especially in today's climate, you know, coming out can be dangerous to both you and the people you care about. And the fact that that level of fear is part of the coming out, like, you know, telling them that, yes, I'm putting myself in danger, but I'm doing it because it's what I want to do or who I am. And because he thinks it's right. He feels it's the right thing to do. And I think it's so appropriate that he's the one with the huge heart on his chest because he kind of is the heart of the best friend squad in being, He's without any magical capabilities, but he does what he does do very well, and he's the biggest cheerleader for everyone around him. Yeah, no, I I totally agree that he is the heart, but I I would go even further because in a show that, you know, you so wonderfully identified as having very strong, very diverse female characters at its center – 
in from my perspective, Bo is one of the most traditionally female energies on the show. He's very maternal, specifically a maternal figure, because he's constantly managing the emotions of everybody around him, making sure that the friendship is taken care of. He takes on that responsibility. And I do think that um, some of the other people have identified how he's he's very quick to be distraught if something is wrong or if if for example in that one scene where he goes i thought i was being supportive but actually i was being terrible <laughs> you know his, his worst fear is being a terrible friend and, and i think that a lot of people again fathers feel this way as well and non-binary parents too but this this feeling of oh my goodness I have, like, my child isn't happy. I have done something to contribute to my child's unhappiness, and I must fix it. Or there's something I can manage about this situation to make it better. And and even in a very literal sense, I mean, he's the one at, at Adora's bedside when she's sick, helping her get up. He's the one that makes sure Glimmer gets to the moonstone. He's always saying, now, Glimmer, don't use too much of that power. I know you want to. But you might run out and it might hurt, you know, like always a little word of caution behind everything that he does. But not even just that. He also is there to make sure that they're happy because he's always the one. He's the first one to suggest that they party because, yes, everyone, you know, they have to fight and they have to save the world. But at the end of the day, they also have to take care of their emotions. and, And he's there for that. He plays the role that a lot of uh, females in 80s team-ups would have been. like effectively, The nurturer. The nurturer, yeah. Mm. He's the one that has to remind everyone that we all need snack breaks. Yeah. He's your pot. Oh, that's real. The ultimate mom friend. Mm. (laughs) Also, the depiction of his two dads is is exemplary. Like Just how smoothly they were brought in and how little there was like, oh my God, two dads. One of the most appealing things about Etheria is that just none of the the uh, societal mores and um, hand-wringing of our uh, you know, troubled world seem to exist there. Everyone seems to be just sort of free to pursue whatever their own pursuits are and uh, it, it's been said that just while this doesn't bring in the uh, analogues for the trouble that people on the LGBTQ spectrum face, it does present us with an ideal for wouldn't it be great if the world just didn't really give much of a toss whether you have two dads or whether you're non-binary whether you're trans anything and it does then allow for as as holly pointed out there's there's analogs for those processes but there they could apply them to other things Mm. like Bo having this um, drive to be a freedom fighter which totally goes against the um, sort of pacifist tendencies that his dad has and uh, Entraptor's way of thinking about things that is sort of influenced by uh, by the autism spectrum that is totally separate from anything regarding her relationship status or anything like that. One thing I did recognise was that Bo takes a rather fatherly or brotherly look towards Seahawk and I find it adorable that one of his dads has an an excellent moustache and so does Seahawk and so does Bo's own image of himself. Yes, in his fantasy of himself he has that that cute little touch, Mm -hmm. doesn't he? One thing that I always thought about Bo as a character is, number one, he's the only one in the main cast that doesn't really have powers and he shows the analogue of, you know, your deter- like determination can be a power 
But I always felt like uh, with Entrapta, also being a princess that doesn't have powers, that Bo was always like the princess of friendship, <laughs> kind of unofficially. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. he does seem like kind of an honorary princess most of the time, doesn't he? <laughs> he does get to go to Princess Prom every year. He does. Comma band optional. <laughs> um, okay, let's uh, move on to Scorpia, and that is Colin. Scorpia, probably of all the characters on the show, is who I identify with the most. And the reason being is because, especially when I was a little younger and, and in school, I was really keen to take care of other people or identify what made other people special, celebrate their uniqueness and call myself their friend without actually taking care of myself or looking inwards and thinking, hey, you know, I wonder if they actually are my friend. So I would create these relationships with people that were at the end of the day superficial, not even in just a trite sense, but superficial because I wasn't getting anything deep or they weren't looking deeply at me. I was a surface individual. And I think that Scorpia, as a, a hybrid, you know, proud bug lady, she's she's to a lot of people all about exoskeleton. And she says even towards the end when she's fighting, I am the muscle. I'm not a I'm not anything. You know, I can't I can't go on stage, even when she does. She's surprised at herself that she can sing so well. She I'm a spy. Imi- Sorry. Oh, <laughs> no. If, if we need to pause to listen to that song, I am all <laughs> Oh, yeah, so good. Sneak. Don't make a sound. Sneak. Just look around. I've always been strong, but now my nerves are gone, cause I know I can do it. Sing, dance, be a spy, hiding before your very eyes. How could I sneak with this fine physique? Discover the truth, it doesn't take a sleuth. For now I'm a spy, spying in disguise, hiding before your very eyes. Until you discover, stay undercover, seeking a clue that will lead me to you. Yes, I'm a spy, spying in disguise, hiding before your very eyes. Sneak, don't make a sound. Sneak, just look around. I'm a Sorry, okay. I interrupted, Karen. No, no, it's that, that again. Oh boy, I'm sorry I interrupted. Carry on, yeah. please. <laughs> I know, I, I was like, let's all get into our Scorpio vibes. Um, but I, I think that she she learns how to value herself because she always knew how to value other people. And that is, for me, something very special to see, especially in such a, a wide range of personalities that do have a lot of things to celebrate, you know, and she doesn't stop, by the way, celebrating other people. Even when she becomes, she leaves the horde and joins the princess rebellion, she's she's very quick to see how amazing Perfuma is. She even connects with Frosta, who I think has 
been of all the princesses the one that has struggled the most to be seen as a as a true contributor. So yeah, I, I just I think that Scorpia has there's a lot to appreciate about her. And while we watch her um, learn how great she is, she becomes this key figure in, in our hearts as fans of the show. I think the scene where Catra's just going off on her and it's kind of this culmination of Scorpio realizing that she doesn't really have to stick around. What could have been like a whole tiny speech about their relationship, Scorpio just has to say, you're a bad friend. Mm. And that says everything. That destroyed me. And it's it's funny that you mentioned the uh, you know her size and her exoskeleton, but she seems to have like she's one of the people that has just the biggest heart in the show. She says from the beginning, like one of her very first lines in the entire series is, "I'm a hugger. I gotta <laughs> hug everybody. I gotta love everybody." She's just she's such a pure person. She takes everything at face value, and I like that. Even from the very beginning, like right away, it showcases her vulnerabilities and her desire to have a friend and how quickly she's latching on to Katra as the person that's going to provide that for her. Uh, so it's, it's really nice to kind of see her throughout the course of the series break away from that and also find that she does have something to contribute and she can make some friends that are actually good for her. Scorpio was one of my absolute favorites from the beginning. It might simply have been down to the line and physical response of Kitty to Catra, who is sometimes just a cat, especially if you watch her ears and her tail. I was always a fan of Zarya in Overwatch, and Scorpio is kind of the goofball version of that. And she looks absolutely smashing in that dress. The princess prom is very early, so she talks about how she's sort of removed from the rest of the princesses and they don't really regard her as a princess. She isn't connected to the, her runestone. Uh, but at the same time, there's a connection point where Catra starts talking about all the, her feelings where she's angry at Adora, and uh, Scorpia kind of misinterprets it for her opening up to her when she's just venting at her. So the sort of launch point for Scorpia thinking that they're best friends and that Catra's actually connecting to her when in, in real life she's just ends up being this punching bag throughout most of the series. One thing I love about Scorpia is that like her entire design almost goes against expectation because uh, she's such an earnest and caring person, but she's also very large and with the Scorpion traits because typically in stories, Scorpions tend to relate to like with the frog and the scorpion it's betrayal Mm. or they signify death or it's always negative there's nothing about the original scorpio which suggests she would become this character it's amazing and i will say Mm. as well as an astrological scorpio we have a bad rep (laughs) sorry holly carry on uh that's pretty much it it's just that like everything about her personality and who she is defies her design Mm. uh for a show that's really good about like lining up design with themes that is also a theme that she doesn't fit her design 
I also love the fact that she's never like self-loathing regarding her massive lobster claw. She does, she never goes, "Oh God, curse these giant hands!" Like at one point, she's given that tiny little device to try to to work, and rather than going, "I can't do it," she just gives it to um, Lonnie. Lonnie, yeah, uh, and just you know, you've got thumbs. small hands, you, you use that. <laughs> And like to her, these hands are normal because she grew up with scorpion people. Mm. So it, it's, absolutely. So where they are, yeah. things will fit to her. And I love the fact that Scorpio, as well, is our window into the the horde's existence on Etheria. We learn quite early on that um, the the horde crash landed in her people's homeland and. Like her, from the sounds of things, they are all arms open wide and very trusting. And so they made space for the Horde and whatever the outcome of it, have supported them and provided them with a platform. And I think it's also one of the most tragic aspects of her character because there is this sense of lost history. She knows that very recent history, but when we see her go into like her family line's ancestral little ruined area... We find out there's all these pictures of those who came before her, but she's had to make up names for them. Mm. She doesn't actually know who they are. And I love the fact that she finally sort of finds somebody who finds her value in Perfuma, who who sort of transforms her and loves her energy and loves her, her big heart and tells her, you know, you should do things not because you're good at them, but because it makes you happy. And so she finally gets that relationship that, you know, she wasn't able to get with Catcher, who wasn't open to it yet. (laughs) With somebody who actually appreciates her. I couldn't really decide whether Scorpio was just really, really good friends with Catcher or actually liked her for Mm. the first couple of series. She super admires her, so there is that, like, it's difficult to really tell, Mm -hmm. especially it's being a kid's show. She does seem to feel relationships very intensely Mm. regardless, but were you shipping a little? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, just the general body positivism around her and the fact that she doesn't give up being this person and she isn't spoiled by what goes on to her that 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 there's a purity about her there's a purity about a lot of these characters that just doesn't get um wrecked by goings on that once you get into the groove of the show you start to really like everyone and one of the best most appealing things is there's so many of them which would normally bog down a show as in there's so many to to cover but that it, it creates a series of not infinite but multiple Combos of well, we haven't tried these two together. How about these two together? Mm. And uh, yeah, Scorpio goes with pretty much mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah, her whole conversation with Seahawk, mm. where they both realize they're great. They're just being treated badly. There's a spectrum of choices regarding who you are, what you look like, who you interact with, how you relate to the world around you throughout the whole show. Um, And and one really lovely example is when. uh, Scorpia and Catra meet the Gina Davis character whose uh, name I can't remember. Huntara. Huntara. Thank you. And it, they're kind of given this other option as far as, you know, are you are you with the Horde or are you with the Rebellion? Well, actually, there is this kind of neutral space in the middle that you can occupy, mm. even if just temporarily while you're making your mind up. Oh, that's our alarm on uh, Scorpia. Uh, so the next one's in Traptor, which would be Maya. 
All right. So I don't know about you guys, but as someone who often gets distracted very easily by outside <laughs> stimulus, uh, I identified with Entrapta pretty much right away. I love the fact that she's so hyper focused on her gadgets and, and she just she constantly has to fix things like as soon as she goes into the horde she's like you know if they just rerouted this thing and if they just moved that around they would get so much more of a, a, a power surge and they're like hey stop trying to help the enemy but she just she can't help it she just has to fix things and make things more efficient and streamline everything because that's just her whole world and she's so good at it I really love her design. I love how her hair is kind of like its own entity, like it's self-aware, kind of like um, kind of like Doc Ock with the the octopus arms, mm-hmm. and and how they're like little hands that kind of help her. And I think that's that's such a great addition to her personality because she's constantly reaching for and grabbing things, and she her brain works so fast that. She needs more than one. Uh, she needs more than one set of hands to do everything that she wants to do because she just wouldn't be able to do it fast enough if she didn't have them. Um, so I, I just really like that element of, of her design and how she walks around on them. I'm sure everybody noticed that about her as well. Um, and I also really like how her relationship with Hordak develops. It starts out as this very utilitarian, like, hey, I know that this person can help me. I know that they can uh, get more power for me. But then they start to become friends. And it's it's a very, like, Hordak gets so upset when she when she's gone. And you realize that they really did have this this weird connection with each other, which I don't know how deep we want to go into that. But I just found it very satisfying to see that even Hordak can be won over by someone like Entrapta because their minds work in a very similar way. And, you know, of course, that leads on to her creating wrong Hordak or kind of adopting him as as a bit of a replacement for this friendship that she used to have and being able to teach someone else, which I thought that was a nice little element to her character as well. So I don't want to go on for too long because I could just gush about Entrapta forever. But those are kind of my, my thoughts in a nutshell about her. I do know that I can gush about it because I do have some points as well. <laughs> Please um, do. But I did think that Entrapta liked Hordak a lot because he is basically a living piece of tech. Mm. He uses tech to keep himself alive. Hordak likes Entrapta so much because she isn't intimidated by him. Yes, I thought that. And and also in the sense that uh, Hordak, as we come to learn as the show progresses, is quite a damaged individual and has, because he's had to break away from the kind of hive mind or has accidentally broken away from the hive mind and that's the basis of, of how he's come to form his own personality separate from the, the process of being cloned from Horde Prime... The thing about Entrapta that I could see being very appealing to him is she's got no artifice, she's got no guile, she can't lie. He can't... He, how to phrase this? He doesn't need to trust her because she will never ever lie to him or, or have any form of pretense because she doesn't use it. It's not a quality that she uh, relies on in any way for her personal relationships. 
He can trust She's her to always She's not a manipulative person. Exactly. So he can trust her always to be completely upfront with him. Mm-hmm. Well, her, her only motivation is science, so mm. she has no reason to lie because she always just is in a pursuit of more knowledge. And ultimately, that ends up being something that sort of is casually distinctive of Hordak versus Horde Prime, in that when Horde Prime uh, visits Etheria, he notices that Hordak did all this research and, and says, oh, I can use this for what I need now. I believe she was also uh, a uh, major character written with um, is it Asperger's syndrome or uh, ADHD? Autism, autism, autism spectrum, spectrum disorder. disorder yeah. uh, in mind. And I like how they didn't just go, look, she's autistic, therefore she's an absolute genius, which is just brilliant. It's, it's, it, it presents no drawbacks at all. She can be hurtful to people because of her hyperfocus. And there are times when she realizes, oh, you're sad, and I don't know why. And it, it's a really neat way of showing kids, some people you meet will have minds that don't work like you, and they might end up being a little distracted and hurtful. It could be that they don't even realize this yet. Well, her being hyper-focused, I think that really is what it comes down to. Like, she gets so caught up in whatever little thing she's working on that she forgets how to people, and she doesn't really know how to people. Well, one thing I think is implied about that is, uh, like, when we first meet her, she's in a kingdom that's just, like, a couple of servants and robots. And, like, the servants, when we first meet them almost have this like reverence of princesses like princesses are beyond a normal person they have abilities we don't have they're intimidated by like her intelligence and uh she like to me she always it always felt like she embraced tech because she got to make her own friends because everyone else around her was probably intimidated by how she was and I think when we meet them, it also is a pretty good encapsulation of how into her specific interest she is. Her She seems to have had at least some hand in the creation of the castle thing she lives in. And it is built like a total labyrinth because that's interesting to her. It doesn't matter if her servants <laughs> cannot find her ever. Far. <laughs> or if she can't even find her her own way around like she gets lost in her own labyrinth because she doesn't like and it's and it doesn't matter because then that's an extra challenge to her that's something else she can puzzle out and and figure out for herself also did anybody else think that the uh, obsession with tiny food was because at least that way she knows she's going to finish her mouthful rather than her mind wandering off in the middle of a meal and leaving everything else because I certainly related to that. <laughs> there were too yeah, many unfinished probably. plates hanging around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, I feel with Entrapta, I mean, I, I love her. I relate to her a lot. I, I have ADHD, so I relate to those sort of neurodivergent perspective. Um, with her, she... She says that she doesn't do people right and she can't, she's not good at friends or whatever. But you see that she's actively, she's very good at being a friend. Uh, she's very observant of other people and details that, you know, might not be regularly conversational. But for example, when she makes all the spacesuits for everyone, she makes them very specific to their character, including how Bo actually has his abs. He's got a little window for his abs in it. <laughs> <laughs> she makes 
I think the thing that covers it, he said it was a cumber muffin. <laughs> it's a cumber bun. Cumber bun, yeah. Cumber bun. <laughs> Optional. <laughs> Sorry, I got bun and muffin mixed up. <laughs> but uh, the cumber muffin uh, is very funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> the, ep- the episode on Beast Island was so significant that when we started watching the original She-Ra in the past few days, uh, Lyra was like, they get to Beast Island in like two episodes? What the hell? Just the nature of that place and the fact that Entrapta felt so drawn to it and could just lose herself there, but that that was shown as not really the best thing for her, that she would just be kind of lost to the world. Uh, was uh, it was a really powerful episode, especially when you've got the uh, the contrast of Glimmer's father and, and how he cubs with it. I don't know how helpful this is in terms of uh, enriching or invigorating discussion, but can we talk about what's going on with her hair? Because I've had some thoughts, and none of them are good or comforting, like what exactly the mechanics are or what's beneath the hair. You've got like, one minute to speculate. I, I, I guess I'm curious because, like... I imagine them as sort of like tentacles, like skin tentacles, but covered in hair. And I'm like, oh, I just, I don't want to see that in my brain. So like a Twi'lek from Star Wars, but they can totally move those head tails. I could could imagine them as uh, very long nerves covered with keratin. So they can move and, and, but still be sort of very fibrous and not specifically um, have an awful lot in there in the way of muscle. I will say this, though. I saw an awesome Entraptor cosplay mm-hmm. where she'd coordinated the, the hairpiece to have effectively sleeves. It came <gasps> down to her shoulders and then went over her arms, so her arms were in the hair, and then she had these little tiny artificial arms I think were crossed in front of her no no they were holding tiny food oh that was it yes little arms holding tiny food so (laughs) her own arms were free to then pick things up and move things around which I thought was absolutely brilliant I I love that you mentioned that she reminded you of Dr. Octopus she reminds me a little of a non-evil or less evil she's like true neutral version of Liv uh, Octavia Uh, Liv yeah Yeah, Yeah, uh, Liv uh, uh, in Mm -hmm. um, Spider-Verse uh, okay, mm-hmm. so... That's exactly what I thought, especially with her little goggles that she wears all the mm, time. Yeah. That's that's a uh, like a, a, a pretty much a pre, predetermined costume piece for a, uh, a wrench wench, I believe is the, the, the term. <laughs> I mean, I was like, well, Harry Arlington's going to need some goggles straight away. That like, steampunk aesthetic yeah. gets everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, Holly yeah. uh, Shadow Weaver. Um, yes. Shadow Weaver was the hardest character for me to really, like care about and it's because I grew up with an abusive parent and so I wanted to lash out a lot like I said I identified with Katra uh, it was easy to hate Shadow Weaver at first uh, to blame pretty much all of Adora and Catra's problems on Shadow Weaver but uh, I think in the end she she does clearly care about Catra and Adora, but in very different ways. And she felt she could only really put her attention on one of them, so she puts it on Adora uh, because she feels the like strong, magical, you know, impulse from Adora and thinks that she has the best chance of surviving. And maybe sees a little too much of herself in Catra. I think the turnabout for Shadow Weaver for me comes when you first see her encounter with Hordak because the kind of 
that narcissistic parental behaviour is duplicated a little bit in him and again because with both of them you find out more about where they're coming from and what's influenced them so there's a bit more of an explanation for where that comes from but in those early interactions you can see that sort of they're they're trading off abusive behaviors with each other and using that sort of push-pull dynamic to manipulate the kids basically which initially sort of gives you that you have to really dislike them I think to start with so that the sympathy for uh, Adora and Catra and, and frankly anybody else who comes within their radar is very solidly established. Well definitely like her fitting into that narcissistic parent archetype uh, you see so many common symptoms of that. So um, when there's two children, oftentimes a narcissistic parent will, there's a golden child and a problem child, and she sort of pits them against one another. Uh, narcissists will often see their children as extensions of themselves, and so they need them to be perfect and the absolute best as a reflection of them, and any flaws that they have are are not something to be overcome, but rather a reflection badly on them. And you even see that with Shadow Weaver when Katra confronts her, Shadow Weaver says that you remind me so much of myself. So she feels think, a need to abuse Katra to, to like in quotes, motivate her. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think that for me, what really endeared me to Shadow Weaver as in terms of interest in her character was her performance or the vocal performance rather. Mm. I think that Lorraine Toussaint does a really wonderful job of layering her venom with honey. There's this mixture of care that pops into these very aggressive statements and the balancing of those two makes it very clear how somebody that's been given those words their entire life would be so confused emotionally. And I think in their own ways, we see that in Adora and in Catra, of course. So part of, um, and, and, and I think that Shadow Weaver is a little different in, because something that I think from the beginning of the show to the end, we see in all the characters to varying degrees are how parents of these people or lack of parents has um, created the beginnings of their journeys and, the, and sort of the obstacles has peppered their way with different obstacles. Whereas with Shadow Weaver, we don't see any instance of parental um, in, engagement. We see society-based issues. You know, we see her struggle to use power in a way that the rest of the people at Mysticore will, you know, support. We see her struggling to be a, a, a maternal figure and also a mentor to Micah and ha- and gain the respect of the people for that, but do it in, in a way that, you know, she doesn't obviously recognize uh, boundaries and she goes obviously way too far with it. But I did, I did think that there was probably something to the pain in her voice where this woman has been through a lot. And I think that she's had to fight to be recognized in and to get as far as she has. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of, um, there's it's not so much that she's once again she's not a purely evil person she's a person that's gone through a lot of pain there's a very fine line between uh pitying a villain and excusing a villain and they do 
she is an extremely dark character, but the, the tragedy around her and that sense of real hurt in the moments when we see her at her lowest, it, it's almost like they had to have her end the way she did. Mm, because I was just going to say, giving her the end that she has yeah. and the, the sacrifice that she has, it is heartbreaking. And it does just keep her that that side of feeling as you say, pity rather than um, than it feeling like you're making excuses for her. I do know one thing that is quite heartfelt is that when she was hit with that blow of dark magic when she was trying to do... I think it was the... I don't it was can't summon, remember what spell it, it was. But the, it was like the spell of containment or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, or obta- obtainment. But that gave her a boost of power that she became addicted to. Mm-hmm. And that's why she was so drawn to Adora. Mm-hmm. Which is why w- when it's taken away from her, the best way she can deal with it is with the flowers. and Which has a small connection to the Whispering Woods and how it was made with loving care and it has some trace of magic in it. That's why she's also drawn to the to the garnet as well. It's such a source of power, and then that gets taken away from her as well. And it's just it makes her fall apart so much. Like her her whole identity around her power is so fragile. Like the smallest thing that you can that that takes it away from her, and just she completely falls apart. And then she follows that with attaching on to Glimmer, who she can use Glimmer to draw from in order to get that same power high. But I actually think that the, her relationship with Glimmer might be the most healthy relationship she has in the whole show, mm-hmm. because Glimmer has very strong boundaries about not letting her manipulate her the way she had manipulated Adora, but she still gets to be useful and learn from her. It's also kind of a second chance to fix the things that went wrong with Micah. Maybe one reason she's so hard on Adora and Katra is because by the time the series starts, Shadow Weaver thinks that Micah is dead. And maybe she feels guilt that if she had been a better teacher or stronger or taught him to be stronger, he might have lived. She's another example of a character that just was exponentially built upon uh, based on the original version who was kind of a, a tall Jawa with pendulous breasts <laughs> and um, you know who, who basically <sighs> talked very science. one-dimensional yeah, yeah. Th- they layered on so much and I'd actually you know when a, a, a character trait is so well applied that I just I kind of forgot the fact that you've never seen her face completely until the very very end when she shows it to Adora and Catra the significance of that moment the fact that she chooses then makes you realize that you'd forgotten you hadn't seen it for for, for the whole way through and it just just caps the character off in this um, extremely elegant way and that she says the one thing that Katra always wanted to hear, which is, I'm proud of you.
it's not quite a full redemption arc, but it is like a just a nice cap that shows that she wasn't like pure evil, that she could do good, and that she did feel love in whatever capacity she could for Adora and Katra. And her being able to fight back from that does afford Catra that sense of being able to move forward. So it's not just, hey, we've clicked our fingers and the one evil character is now good. It was There was gradations throughout. Again, this is why it's so frustrating what uh, Star Wars chose to do. Vader dies redeeming himself. So the evolution of that should have been that Ben lives to make amends. Yeah, I think it's a it's a nice affirmation of people who... I mean, and I, I've been very fortunate, but I I have a family member whose um, parents have been very abusive. And part of what I've learned in conversations with them over the years is that as much as they've had to set boundaries and separate and develop their own identity and find ways to heal, they're very much still a part of them. And so they still have that emotional connection, um, even though there there is darkness there. And so I think that Instead of, um, you know, I think the writing would have been more sloppy if they were saying, all right, well, you know, you're you're done with Shadow Weaver. You don't care about her anymore, Adora and Catra. Like, you're, you've totally given up on this woman. And, you know, but I think that it was just, like you said, elegant is the way to do it because they're, they're not denying, you know, what they feel for her. That she was their maternal figure, even though she had a lot of problems. And I think that that was, uh, that was very helpful for some people watching the show. Okay, uh, we can now talk about the next uh, six characters for about 30 seconds each. So just because <laughs> <laughs> if we've got only five minutes, that's that's what we've got to uh, lower it down to. So 30, 30 to 45 seconds, depending on uh, on what you've got to say. Okay, Holly on Hordak. Yeah, the big thing with Hordak that I like to take away is that... Uh, for a lot of the series, him and Glimmer, after you rewatch it, actually have very similar motivations. They're trying to prove themselves to this being that is essentially like them, but perfect, you know, immortal, powerful. Uh, and he's a flawed clone, and Glimmer is, you know, a reckless princess. And they actually have a lot in common in how they, uh, like, try to tackle this. Only Hordak doesn't have any real limitations on his trying to prove his worth, whereas Glimmer has a very overprotective mother, and then watching that kind of play out. He's in a kind of precarious situation, though, because he knows, I think he is kind of a little bit aware that he's going against his programming. He knows he's not supposed to do this, he's not supposed to name himself, he's not supposed to have an identity outside of this like Borg hive mind and yet he does it anyway I, I think that's a really cool aspect of his character is that even though he knows that this is wrong in the in the construct of of what he's been a part of for his entire life since he's been a clone he still has that desire to break away from it I really liked when uh, Wrong Hordak was brought in towards the end. The way it came across to me was this gives you a little bit of insight into what 
right Hordak, if that's the right term to use, um, <laughs> felt internally that there was this almost sort of very childlike, what the hell, this is the world and I have no idea how I fit into it. Um, and then having to build his own identity out of that. Um, and that, I think, gave us, because like I said, one of the things I love about the show is the flashbacks and the, the memories. And I think Wrong Hordak kind of gave us a little bit of that for Hordak. It's, I was actually really surprised the direction they took with him. It would have been so easy and so expected to make him this abusive father figure, this uh, Thanos, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like Thanos played that out so... It's almost like they anticipated, because that in 2018, they didn't know quite how Infinity War was going to go. Mm. But uh, I don't know whether they changed direction with him, but like making him vulnerable... Uh, you know, when Entraptor started uh, helping him out and, and, and when Catra cast him down effectively, just blindsided me. And it was really fascinating watching uh, an oppressive character kind of become nothing and then build himself back up from that nothing because that just doesn't happen. Mm. Anyway, like, that's not, that doesn't happen to the big bad. I think he's he's not not an abusive father, but because you have Shadow oh, no, yeah, he there is, but like, as a very hands-on abusive parent, he's much more sort of he's detached and dismissive and and rejecting. I mean, the abusive father that is the big bad to yeah. overcome. If we're going to get like the, the point that Gamora and Nebula finally managed to unite against him in in uh, uh, Endgame was that bit being overcome. It's um, it's refreshing that they went in a different direction with this. Yeah. Yeah, and the and Fire also, Lord as well, obviously. Yeah. Prime is Thanos, and Hordak is Ronan. Hmm. Only Ronan ended up less than one dimensional, just a humorless asshole. So they they took did their best where they could with him. I also like that, despite the fact that he is the one who throws the big bad off the cliff, he's not entirely redeemed by that. There, it's not ignored that he was a dictator trying to conquer the planet for a while. Even Mermis is like, are we just okay with this now? At the end, showing that there's probably a little more that he's going to need to do post-show and give speculation to that. I just want to know why he has red teeth and why Horde Prime has green teeth. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. Everything can be explained with magic. He's magic. That's why he's a failed clone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the next one will be Queen Angela, and that is Colin. I really enjoyed Queen Angela as a character because I think that it's helpful to see where strong opinions and resistance to act can come from because I think that so much for her is fear response and it's doubled not just because she's a parent and she doesn't want her daughter to be hurt but also because she lost her husband and she feels directly responsible for his death and so as you get to know her through the series she opens up as a character because at the beginning you sort of think all right, well, she's really just rigid and kind of repressing her daughter's ability to move on, and there's problems there. But when you get into it, there's very real consequences for using magic carelessly or for going into battle carelessly. And so often I I found myself connecting with, with her, not because I necessarily agree with her, but I saw her perspective because... 
I think certain, depending, and I, I know that we, we talked about Glimmer's age being very, uh, very important for her character and her decision-making process, but I think it is for Angela, too, because she's seen war, she's seen destruction, and it is a big deal, because so many characters in childhood shows are so ready to go into battle, and it's, it's, it becomes almost flippancy, and really there there should be characters that say, you know, even though I know some people would probably argue that for the betterment of the kingdom, Angela probably had some other choices to make for for everyone surrounding her. But she she was resistant to it, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Being resistant to going into battle and actually seeing it as a last resort is not a is that's not a bad thing either. <laughs> One would argue that's a good thing. <laughs> The other um, thing about Angela is that she also saw the original Princess Alliance fail. Like, that's another big aspect of that, is that she saw the original iteration of this completely fall apart and probably lost a lot of friends and loved ones in the process of that as well. I think one thing that makes it kind of interesting is that she is supposed to be this immortal character and she herself admits she's a coward and it's like the caution that you know is always associated with immortality like uh in lord of the rings the treants you know taking weeks to really decide anything um and you know she not really feeling that sense of urgency leading to a more careful approach and careful to her ended up becoming fear out of loss instead of, you know, uh, just more wisdom or a slower pace. I think the exploration of fear in in the She-Ra mythos is quite an important one because it stands against that uh, Masters of the Universe, everything's about the battle, everything's about the fight. And how... Uh, in sort of the typical 80s type shows it's that you know you you overcome your you're afraid of something well just go and hit it and that'll take care of it and this is so exploratory around that and allowing an examination of well you know sometimes it takes a lot more than just the decision to act there are other things that you have to take into account fear has to be overcome and especially when there are very good reasons to be afraid and even the fact that it starts out with all of the princesses being um like the the alliance is kind of broken because they're all concentrating very much on their their homelands and uh, and as you say angela having seen that all fall apart it does inform very much on how she responds and reacts to it coming back together again including and in particular how she treats uh, glimmer who's very full on with this whole let's pull them all back and a lot of that's just because she sees so much of her husband in Glimmer. Mm, yeah. And she's trying to, you know, rein it in so that she doesn't suffer the same fate. Yeah. I just like this aspect of her being a queen that doesn't, she's not able to rule in a time where her her strengths are really able to be put to the put to good use. I mean, she's very clearly a diplomat and she she's not, she's not a warrior. And, and I, I think that's, that's another thing that, made me love her is one like going oh man like if if only the state of affairs were different you know you're just you're just not really designed for for what's going on okay uh if we can somehow combine light hope 
and Mara into this next one. I did notice something that was quite difficult for Light Hope in that she had a choice of breaking her programming. She had a choice of heart or logic, and she chose logic. And at the end, she chose logic again, but she was happy because she had someone to stop her, which is quite heartfelt. And I did feel a very strong connection between Mara and Light Hope and the fact that they both enjoyed being around each other. I think it's clear yeah. that they had a pretty strong friendship going on and they really they at one time they really did trust each other but that ends up just completely falling apart and and it's it's kind of sad too because even right from the beginning when Adora first meets Light Hope uh she's very quick to throw Mara under the bus like right away like she immediately springs to this is all Mara's fault and we have to fix all of her mistakes. And I like how in the course of the series, uh, Mara gets more humanized and Light Hope is called more into question. She's not this omnipotent being that just is like this cosmic entity that knows everything. Like She is deeply, deeply flawed. And they could have very easily turned her into somebody that is just like an authority on all of the first ones all of this stuff having to do with Eter- with you know Eternian and this whole world, and she's not. She's just as flawed as if she were one of the human characters. I think they do limitation very well uh, in this show, and Light Hope's a great example of that. The fact that she does have all of this knowledge, but she can't use it. She can't do anything outside the uh, the sort of crystal palace that she's bound to, and the fact that the 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 force that is Shira is epitomized by a sword which is in a lot of magical systems the sword represents kind of will and the striking arm and the, the that sort of mythical force out in the world that's exactly what um Mara is she is uh, almost like a an in-world avatar for the uh, the first one's spirit that light hope kind of represents the the brain behind it but mara is the one who can act and eventually chooses to do so i feel there was a bunch of love and trust between light hope and mara and that light hope feels mara betrayed it by essentially dying uh and that's why she basically turns that betrayal into anger at mara um you know you died on me and clearly it's because you were wrong and now I have to fix everything so that this doesn't happen again. Not wanting to repeat cycles and fear of repetition is a theme that seems to go through the entire uh, cast. Mm-hmm. Like Shadow Weaver not wanting to repeat the death of Angela's husband. Angela not wanting to repeat the death you know, with Glimmer of her husband. Then Light Hope not wanting to repeat the death of Mara. Yeah, yeah, that that sense of of ongoing and repeating myth and generational trauma and and stuff that comes up over and over again is very strong through the whole thing. There seemed to be a bit of a dichotomous um, sort of, I guess you could maybe a symbol, maybe a symbol for what other characters have 
because they, they all have choices. Whoa, I'm really floundering on this one. There seems to be a dichotomous comparison between Light Hope and Mara in terms of directions for other characters and choices that they are able to make. Because you have on one end of the spectrum Light Hope, who conforms to her programming. In other words, her programming overtakes her, even though her wishes are opposing. And Mara who has this whole thing of destiny with She-Ra and what, what she has to do. But she ends up going against that and, and doing something totally different and hiding the planet somewhere where um, this this thing that she ultimately was set up to do can't happen for the betterment of everyone living on Etheria. So, and, I, and you see characters fall on either side where, you know, they're... Some of them are doing not what they really feel, but what they're, it, but because it's a part of what they've been programmed to do, and vice versa. And I like that that because the show's conceit ultimately seems to be that you need to trust what's in your heart, trust what you want to do, and self-direct as opposed to just taking in information and and taking in a direction from someone else. Because even Adora has to decide for herself what her destiny is. She's even though she's given quite a bit of information about what it can be. And just on that topic of destiny as well, one of the things I really appreciated which I'm not entirely certain how this came about but in uh, one of the early episodes when they get to the place where um the the sword kind of comes to life, the password on the door is Eternia and I assumed that the Uh, narrative line that the first ones was going to take that it would turn out that they were from Eternia and they would tie it back into the original series that way but they never solidified that conclusively which makes me wonder if that was their intention to start with but then they realized that they had more than that and didn't need to lean back on that that previous iteration with the first ones, one thing I like that uh, it's not directly connected to Light Hope, but it you know it starts with Light Hope, and that's that you kind of learn that the first ones, in some ways, are almost just as bad as the Horde and Horde Prime. Uh, when you see the planet that they basically used up all the magic to fuel their war, and you learn that they were trying to do that same thing to Etheria. Uh, it kind of puts it into the this shades of gray. You, they weren't just you know these ancient good civilization that lost to Horde Prime. Hmm. That they also had a dark side. Any more on Horde Prime? Actually, uh, I kind of wanted to say yeah. I no, kind of had okay. some stuff to say about Horde Prime, okay. but uh, uh, Lauren, you can go first if you want. Uh, sure. Okay. Um, so. I mean, talking about all uh, narcissism and everything, I can't think of anything that's more narcissistic than wanting a perfect universe to be copies of yourself everywhere. Mm. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and of course, we see True. <laughs> there's the obvious reference to the Borg, but if anyone else is a Steven Universe fan, I definitely saw White Diamond in his characterization a lot. There was definitely a lot of Sailor Moon in this last season where they had, like, the princesses Mm -hmm. fighting the princesses, like the Sailor Scouts fighting the Sailor Scouts. Um, Yeah. But so much about him is is creating this idea of what perfection is, and he has that idea of perfection. And you see it play out in how he treats uh, his subordinates. So you see that through Hordak 
how his main goal throughout the series is that he wants to get rid of the imperfection because he, he wants to show that he's valuable to his brother and and remove all the things that would get him immediately wiped out or whatever. But then he he's he realizes that that's not the best path when he when he works with Entrapta, who tells him that imperfection is what allows for scientific discovery. So imperfection is what makes you beautiful, and that ends yeah, up being imperfection the is good. Mm-hmm. And I like that that Horde Prime's approach is it, it could have been very easy to turn him into a like Alex was saying before, like well, kind of a, a Thanos character where he's got a very aggressive approach and everything has to be you know you are subordinate, but it's it's not his approach is very welcoming, it's very loving and sort of almost like weirdly affectionate, like. You're coming into this world and you're you're you belong here. You know, you're you're being taken care of. It's it's almost more sinister because he thinks that he's doing something helpful for people almost like I'm I'm making you better. I'm improving you. And isn't it so much better that you don't have to think? Isn't it so much? Uh, isn't it such an improvement that that you we are just doing everything for you? And it's just uh, it's it's very it's very creepy. Like, I found Horde it's Prime like like it is very he is very culty. He is very yeah he is a very cult kind of leader. And and that that idea of like him brainwashing everything is it's a good thing. Like it's a very very creepy like authority figure, but it's really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could have gone in in very different directions with him, and and I think it it does even make him a little bit more evil that he that he considers himself such a benevolent uh, such a, a benevolent tyrant almost a benevolent dictator, and that it's Catra who he draws in kind of underlines the idea that the the chalice he's offering is a poisoned one, that the, the person who embraces it so fully is the person who's already been so, so hurt by the people who brought her up that she will fill that gap with anything. It's almost inevitable that she ends up in that position, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, I think it's also important the fact that he uses familial terms to refer to everyone. It's brother and sister but it's always little brother and little sister leave no doubt that yeah you're my family but I'm the one that's in charge I like the choice it presents for Katra and Adora towards the end of the show as well where they both have very specific jobs to do and it seems like Horde Prime and, and all of his clones are job centric we are going to change the universe we are going to we are going to do to do to do and Katra and Adora you know as very forward driven characters they've sometimes neglected the what they want that isn't a part of their job and so i liked that towards the end they get to i think Katra directly says to Adora like well what do you want like you you want to sacrifice yourself or you feel like you have to but what do you want Adora and instead of you know pushing that away and becoming you know this this slave to the job the slave to what has to be done she also gets to she she finds love and so i think that that's cuz horde prime's existence really represents to me the absence of love a universe without love that can't love 
Well, he loves himself. <laughs> uh, he's obsessed so, with himself. That's pretty uh, clear. Uh, I feel like he's almost what happens when you take a Voldemort sort of uh, mm. motivation to the extreme. Uh, you know, he he clearly thinks that one of the worst things that would happen to the universe is the loss of Horde Prime. So, and he learns that he can be eternal through his clones and taking essentially control of them. Um, and so he wants to make everything Horde Prime because then there will never be, you know, no Horde Prime. Hmm. Who would like to talk about Madame Raz? <laughs> yeah. You go, dearie. Um, <laughs> I feel like Madame Raz is almost the embodiment of Etheria. It's very, like, she has a very similar feel to me to, like, Agra in the Dark Crystal. Mm. Yes. Where, yes. Mm-hmm. where she is literally, like, the embodiment of the will of Etheria. I love Raz. I absolutely love her. She's she's such an advancement on the original and but they even got the broom in there, which I thought was really, really cute. And I love that she is the Well, yeah, a little bit. But again, what I was saying about the the, they have restrictions on the characters, so nobody is all powerful and perfect. She has all of that uh, that insight and being able to uh, perceive all time as occurring in the same moment, but that causes her immense difficulty when she can't pull those occurrences apart and she's seeing that recurrence of history and isn't quite sure where she can intercept and change the outcome. One of my favourite episodes is the one where she's trying to make the pie with uh, with Mara, oh, yeah. and that it keeps intersecting with mm-hmm. Adora coming in, and she's giving instructions to Mara that Adora then carries out, and she's anticipating things from Adora that she is trying to get Mara to do. And it just... I, it, I found that so fascinating. It is. It, it, it almost that episode kind of reminded me of the Times Arrow episode from BoJack Horseman. Oh, like yeah. all of these, oh, like God. the past, present, yeah. future, everything just kind of layers on top of each other, and Madame Raz cannot really distinguish one from the other because it's all existing at once. She's really cool. I kind of wish that Madame Raz was in more of the show. Actually, I, I feel like I, I wanted a little bit more of, of her influence. I'm. I have a particular affection for uh, crones in the woods. I keep um, creating them for various stories, and uh, yeah. I, I could have done with more Raz uh, specifically. Mm. But um, she wasn't too all-knowing, which was. Uh, she makes a great dichotomy with uh, Light Hope in that one of them is all information, and the other one is huge amounts of information, but filtered through a flawed. Um, organic if not human brain Mm. and so she could barely cope with the amount of of knowledge in there she's instinctive wisdom to light hopes uh logical knowledge one thing i did recognize was that mara is so connected to etheria and the basic planet that the first ones got so close to activating the weapon that half of it glitched, and that's why she keeps going back and forth. Mm, yeah. So she's effectively... Um, a loop has been caused in Etheria itself, 
and that's having an impact on Raz because she is an extension of Etheria. I like how intentioned they made her character because I've you we've seen where the crazy old lady has been used as a trope and she's there purely for comic relief, but Madame Raz has a very real goal and she affects the story in, in tangible ways. And I think that one of the things that makes the pie episode one of the most devastating because my roommate and I recently re-binged the entire series and we were we were ready for that one. We were like, oh my god, it's the pie episode. <laughs> Brace yourself, bring the tissues. I think the reason <laughs> that we we care so much is because we feel her on a human level care for Mara because yes, the planet, you know, there are things to do because this will affect the universe on a grand scale. But the bottom line is, is that she cares for this individual and we feel that love. And that, that really, I think made her more of a a three dimensional character as opposed to that old lady that pops in every now and then to say funny things like her wisdom and her motivations are always very simple. Like uh, early on when she first meets Adora, she simplifies the situation and is like, you're so desperate to try to figure out who you are that you talk to the first old lady you meet. Uh, and then, you know, later she just wants to make a pie. But in doing so, she actually sort of tips off and gives wisdom to everyone around her. Just being who she is and doing very simple things. Okay, double trouble I'm going to go for. I was watching them perform and said, this is a them. And I was so pleased when I was right. It's something like the the whole, you can't just do the voice. You have to inhabit the brain space. <laughs> I, that's that kind of arrogant I respect the craft of voice work and acting I was just like oh it's me really <laughs> like I mean like in ideals I'm somewhere between Adora and Glimmer but when I'm you know really getting into what I do well I'm double trouble <laughs> Voiced by Jacob Tobia, uh, American LGBT rights activist, television host, actor, and writer. Jacob is gender non-binary and uses they and them pronouns. And it was a real treat to hear them do this fantastic, almost like a young Tim Curry in Legend performance. <laughs> um, and there was, I think I, as, as time went on, I was like, wow, Double Trouble, you just really don't care that you're hurting people, do you? You just kind of want to cause chaos. Double Trouble is classified as chaotic neutral and their allegiance is to themselves. Catra did try to fill in Scorpio's spot when she left mm. with Double Trouble. But you and can't, it didn't work. yeah, you can't fill someone who's totally like sweet natured and virtuous with someone who's just kind of amusing themselves. They almost had a moment and. Double I... Trouble is a bad friend too. Yes. <laughs> They also had a. They almost had a moment, and I thought it was gonna be really sweet until Double Trouble was just like, "Money now, please." Mm. A mercenary, like very, very much the Mortimer of this particular story. Mm. Yeah. Well, Double Trouble is all about transactional relationships. Mm. So they're very. They work with Catra and play off of. You know, Catra's need to insult everyone and and make fun of everyone because they know that they'll get more work out of the situation. They want to appeal to the, their boss in that situation because they're getting money out of it. 
And it sort of it's compare it's contrasted with Scorpia at that time because Scorpia is trying to give Catra good advice, but Catra is listening to the person who's being fawning in the relationship. I also think it's kind of telling that they went for the horde rather than offering their services to the princesses because going with the horde well that's just going to be more fun i can turn into this sickeningly sweet looking little moth girl while doing all these duplicitous things and i can jump between so many more characters as opposed to having to be a soldier while looking at things that was a missed opportunity for me actually i felt like they they could have dangled the line a little and and not let us in on oh she's Flutterina's actually you know double trouble but i mean minor quibble i just it, it seemed to happen very the reveal was very early it can it's a choice between uh, do you want the no moment when everyone when everyone who hadn't already guessed is suddenly blindsided or do you want the hitchcock tension of it's me folks <laughs> and then the giving us the the little nugget of information that we know and other people don't know I like that they use Double Trouble to kind of help shape and define the real horror of Horde Prime. Once, you know, Horde Prime comes and Double Trouble infiltrates, you know, the myriad Hordax, and he realizes how horrible it is for everything to just be, you know, one thing. (laughs) It helps us define how bad that would be. And really, like, one of the most devastating moments of the show is Double Trouble's takedown of Catra. Oh, yeah. Where mm-hmm. he finally says, without any kind of compassion, just takes down, says everything that's wrong about her relationships with other people. Which might actually propel her forwards into uh, questioning herself in a much deeper way. Everyone has a figure except Perfuma, who's using her plant, and Mermista, who has that for some reason. Says the guy with a bag of dolls. They're war table battle figures! Okay, so I'm thinking... Hold on! So far, I have been shot, eaten, and squashed. We're doing my plan, and there will be no death, no dying, just heroic good times. I am Bo, She-Ra's best friend and defender of Etheria. When the evil horde strikes, I strike back. After I destroy the turrets with my trick arrows, Glimmer teleports us to the tower. There, someone waits in the shadows. (laughs) Catra. Fools, I won't let you destroy my perfect plan. What? (laughs) This is kind of amazing. It looks like I've got you meow, evildoer. I'd pause to reflect on your upcoming death if I were Mew. I don't know. I'm feline pretty good right now. Stop. You gotta stop. Mm, Now we're all hoping this plan kills us. Then prepare to meet your end. Wait, she can do that? No, but I I ran out of figures and only have this left, so she can now. Also, the Horde has dragons, as I did not make enough robots. I step forward and I say, I am Mermista. Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I held aloft my trident and said, For the honor of Grey Whales! 
Then it's like sparkle, sparkle, dolphin, sparkle. Mister. I get shoes that are slightly better than my normal shoes. There's probably another dolphin. Mister. But then like I twirl and then my hair does this thing where it looks all messy, but it's actually like really super beautiful. We are now in the lightning round. <laughs> We can talk about these characters for two minutes, which means that we get about 20 seconds each. (laughs) All right. Okay. Come on, go get fast. Everybody ready? Because after this 20 minutes, I would say we're done because this has been an absolutely magnificent show and I don't want to keep everyone too long. So, first off, Mermista. Catch. Love her look. Love her attitude. (laughs) Mermista is is Heather from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Like, they yes. took Bella Lavelle and then just made her a princess. I'm so oh, I'm yes. a princess of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> she reminds me a little of Aubrey Plaza um, in uh, Cora, but a bit less super intense and goth. Actually, maybe just more Aubrey Plaza in uh, Parks and Rec then. April. Mm, yeah, Aubrey Plaza yeah. in... Uh, Most things. Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Aubrey Plaza in everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's uh, again, it's it's neat to have a, a type of person who just sort of like, I don't care about all of this stuff, but clearly when the chips are down, unlike Double Trouble, Mermista does what Mermista decides is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Her relationship with Seahawk is one of the most contended topics of She-Ra in my apartment because my roommate is like, <laughs> Mermista, she really should just kick that guy to the curb. He's nothing. And I'm on the fence going, no. But like he helps her relax and he's goofy and you know she she's he's an outlet for some of her frustrations and then like behind closed doors she really loves him and appreciates him and she just like ah, no <laughs> I think they're adorable so I'm fine with their relationship as it stands I feel like she would not work well with somebody who was more shall we say effective than uh, than Seahawk <laughs> is I think she quite likes the fact that she's the uh, the the strong one, the gifted one, the one who takes control. The competent of the vast one. The competent one. Thank you. That's the term I was looking for. Yes. <laughs> also, it's great to have a character who kind of takes the uh, uh, pomposity out of some of the uh, the, the more weighty uh, situations. Mm. Oh shit! That was two minutes on Mister. We got to be quick on this one. Next up, <laughs> Seahawk. We- I am. I am. <laughs> Just sing. Everybody sing everything. <laughs> He is, I, I actually looked up the, uh, I looked the voice actor because I assumed that it was Keegan Michael Key doing Sebastian St. Clair from Bojack. The I'm amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. I could see where you would uh, mistake that. He just, oh my God, he's just so ridiculous. And you gotta, you gotta love somebody who, if everything else fails, just light your ship on fire I was just and gonna say that, go with that. He's that like a non-toxic Zap Brannigan. Yeah, that recurring joke of the if all else fails, set the ship on fire. And, mm. the, and the number of times he's like, he has the match and it's there and it's ready and somebody's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> See, and, then in the end, and then in the end, Mermista actually lights a boat on fire just to see. Yep. He's having a positive effect. <laughs> Seahawk gives me such vibes of trying to be the cool big brother and failing miserably. Mm-hmm. Like, he wants to be looked up to as like, yeah, this is who I'm going to go to for help. And it's like, no, I'll, I'm just going to go ask dad for help, not you. Yeah. I loved the Boys Night Out episode. The idea is like, we've, we've gathered together the mm-hmm. only males really in this, apart from Hordak. 
And it's just completely <laughs> catastrophic and none of them know how to boy. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm now imagining a version of that where Hordak is kind of tagging along on the very periphery of the party, mm. wanting to be involved but not being able to be. <laughs> I had a boy's idea. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that would have been I feel good. like we've all had a Seahawk. <laughs> I mean, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. Feel... That, that, person, that person that's like, I am going to be the expert on everything. And it's like the most effectual thing they can do is destroy their own property and just <laughs> send it off okay. into something else. Yeah, I'm glad you can relate. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, okay. Lyra's favourite, Froster. Yes. Aww. One of my favourite points of Froster is that she always thinks of herself as the big buff one, like I'm Frostbite Bane and my friends call me Bane. No, they don't. It's awesome how, at the beginning, she's good friends with Glimmer and after Angela goes, it's harder for Glimmer to be friends with her because mm. she just needs a little bit of time to get the fact that she is now a mother figure yeah but she's suddenly so busy and froster isn't her first priority and it's difficult for them to keep that relationship going mm. isn't it but yeah froster and you said she was your favorite didn't you you yeah, said she was the like one it. that you related the most to <laughs> is it the fact that she's 11 and three quarters has that got something to do with Maybe. it <laughs> The first time I watched it, I was a bit jarred from her going from being very self-serious in the Princess Prom episode to being very much a small child at the beginning of season two. But then when you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, she's in an official capacity. She's going to put up this tough front because that's what you do when you're in charge. That's what all the that's what adulting is, right? She's the kind of person that wants a reputation to maintain. And she's she's loyal to what has happened, or, or that's not phrased correctly. She doesn't forget, because immediately when she sees Katra, she punches her in the face towards the end, even though she doesn't know that she's, you know, changed had a change of heart and is now working with the princesses. I think that that's an important part of her character, too, is that she's... She's not going to let go of tradition, and we, we even see that in the Princess Prom episode where she's like, nope, no violence, this is how it goes, this is everything. She can be very laser-focused about things, and, and that can be interpreted as stubborn, but really it shows her value system, and she does have very strong values, even for her age. Mm. Okay, so Perfuma. I like how Perfuma starts as a very passive character, and from the very beginning, she's kind of she's shown as somebody that's like hey the universe is just going to take care of itself and like basically we don't have to do anything um i i can't remember who said it but the the whole thing of like uh, it's almost like the jedi council like if you ever wanted to know how a bunch of hippies would run a war this is basically what it would look like and it reminded me kind of of that like there's a bunch of hippies trying to do a war and they are pretty much like we're going to throw our hands up and not do anything and so much of her character growth comes down to the fact that she has to act she can't just rely on the universe to take care of itself and she has so much power to to actually move things forward to actually uh, make a difference and make changes in the world that she has around her and and she does kind of connect with her strength and i just i think that's such a great place for her to end up with versus how 
passive and how um, and how weak she considers herself to be at the beginning. The fact that she becomes so strong and so confident in herself. Uh, I know when we first watched what happens, uh, I felt bad for Perfuma because it feels like they kind of rushed her character growth in the one episode to really start the plot going because she goes from passive to, you know, I can fight for myself and now I'm the first princess of the Princess Alliance in 10 minutes, you know. And, but later, when they talk about, like, uh, in the desert and her trying to overcome her problems there, and she gets a lot more character growth and characterization later. And I'm glad they went back to revisit that because they rushed it so quickly at the beginning. I think Perfumer is probably the, after Adora, the character that I identify as the most because of that inability to act and the episode where she kind of has to I I don't think she even necessarily fully overcomes it but she just recognizes that she has to overcome it and that feels like such a huge step that it felt pretty strong for a character who as you say Holly is is fairly thin when she's first brought in I think uh, one of the biggest laughs for me in the entire show is when they came back from space and off camera she cried out, I don't want to lead anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I like that she's a hippie that has a system in place for her mental health because there are times where it doesn't work. And so she's not just this perfectly zen person. It's possible for her. It's possible for her to be thrown off her axis. And so she has to come. She has to recover uh, do a bit of work before she's, you know, perfectly serene again. And I, and I always enjoyed those moments. Okay, so Netosa. Netosa. Net, Netosa? It doesn't Net, work when you're British. Net. She tosses Net. but she's not a tosser. <laughs> okay, Netosa and Spinarella. There is again another couple that no one bats Sorry. an eye at the fact that they are gay. <laughs> There is one thing I would like to mention how um, the creator of Lumberjanes, I forgot what her name was now. Noelle Stevenson. Noelle Stevenson. She has two characters called Mal and Molly, and they have quite the same figure and um, hairstyle as Natossa and Spinarella. Like, Mal has the flipped over hair mm. and short, Spinarella's got the um, side swept blonde. Yeah. And I like it. Nice. And I believe, I might be wrong on this, you might have to check me, but one of them is Noelle Stevenson. Spinarella is. Spinarella, yeah. Nice. I like that they really use this to drive the evil of Horde Prime, the making the two lovers fight and, you know, having to use their knowledge to hurt each other, essentially. I think, uh, like, a line that I think totally defines their relationship so much is when uh, I think Spinarella says... This is why no one comes to games night anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Too much competitivity. Mm. <laughs> and Natasha too, she when Spinarella has been turned by Horde Prime, uh, when they're making a plan about it, says, I always win. I know I know what everyone's weaknesses is because I always win. Kyle, Lonnie, and Rogelio. Yeah, I ship these people. I'm sorry. I just have to (laughs) leave with this because I think that they're the perfect thruple because they all look out for each other. They all have they all bring things to the table. And 
like their story as I as I rewatched it the second time meant so much to me that when they finally defected from the horde, I stood on my chair and I cheered. I was so happy that they did it. And I think that we don't get to see enough of their relationships develop because they're they're side characters. I don't I just think that the they didn't have enough time. But I some of the most memorable moments I think are when there, you know, either Lonnie's getting frustrated at the state of affairs, or if you know Kyle's falling on something or getting hit. I, it just all of those moments were so important to me. This last time I watched it, mm. it's so difficult to imagine any of them without the others as well. I think my probably my favorite moment of theirs is one when is it Lonnie's deliberately misinterpreting what Rahelio's saying and the way he's looking at her like yes. that's, that's totally not what I yes. said. <laughs> But don't worry, you're not alone with the shipping thing. Oh, they really humanize the Horde as mm, well. Um, yes. And and are a great contrast from Hordak's Horde to Hordak Prime's Horde. Mm. Well, actually, on the topic of shipping, uh, Scorpia <laughs> actually does reveal that uh, Kyle told her that he has a crush on Rogelio. Oh, yeah. Ah. Wait. Wait, what? I didn't hear that. We missed that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Scorpio is trying to convince... I can't remember who it was. She's With trying when. to convince somebody that she's good at keeping secrets. And then... Ah. <laughs> That's not how you keep secrets. Nice. No. Nope. <laughs> I don't want to start a big thing about how the evil horde aren't evil enough. Because <laughs> uh, we could be here all night. Uh, but it is... It, it, it's... Uh, it's almost like they're going, okay, you've seen evil empires before, you've seen evil hordes before, you can pretty much pick up that the stormtroopers are evil, we don't need to show you them being horrendously cruel. Uh, what we're focusing more on is the child soldiers in this case. And the fact that there is a kind of, almost, pretty much everyone can be redeemed, and everyone is potentially can come back from a bad place, is something I relish about this show. Even if it never... It's so sweet and rounded and friendly. It rarely feels like... you know When they say at the beginning, we must be strong and we must be brave, I can't stop crying. Uh, um, <laughs> we're going to win in the end. I'm like, yes, yes, we're going to win in the end. That applies to us now here, but we're going through so much worse than these guys literally facing a self-proclaimed evil horde. I mean, <laughs> that, who calls us that? Okay, they don't call themselves the evil horde, but everyone else calls them that. Um, so, I mean, it's almost refreshing that they don't have to drag it down with real world. Here's some cruelty so that you folks can really feel upset. One thing that I noticed about some of the episodes, just little hints that I really liked, was that when Lonnie, Kyle and Rogelio wanted to be friends with Adora, um, Catra actually scratched Lonnie because she wanted Adora for, Adora for herself. Mm. And there was a whole episode about um, on the idea of the evil horde not being evil enough, I always, especially after you go back and rewatch it, it feels like Hordax Horde is uh, essentially like the island of misfit toys. They're the outcasts that are, you know, being evil, you know, evil to just try to like take over and not be outcasts anymore. Mm, which makes sense that if that's the position he's coming from, if that's how he sees himself, he would extend his. Uh, haven, if you like, to people who felt similarly about the world. Yeah, that were flawed and outcasted. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so 
Swift wind. Swifty. Horsey. I was like, oh, splendid. The horse Dem- talks and is somewhat <laughs> sneery. But like, uh, then after all, I was like, oh, no, actually, there's, there's room for multiple talking horses. And these, this guy's very different to the nag. Very happy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Best revolutionary horse ever. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I love the traumatic kind of beginning when he suddenly has wings and rainbow colors and has no idea how to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. I also appreciate that once he's changed, he does not immediately start talking. It takes a little while for him to be like, okay, I have a handle on the wings thing and now we can handle the talking thing. It helps. Uh, there is kind of like this dark side to this too. It's that somehow, you know, Adora or just uh, the She-Ra, the sword, have this weird ability to like give power and a weird connection, like a soul-like connection to things with magic laser beams. Mm. It's when he tries to use that later on as a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> I love that bit. Huntara. Anybody on Huntara? She is a very... I can't remember the exact phrasing for it, but there's a specific gender or flag where someone's not completely masculine and they're a boy or someone's not completely feminine and they're a girl. Mm-hmm. I think she's the one where they're not. Com- she's not completely feminine, but she's still a girl. And, like, she's she's absolutely ripped. Very ripped indeed, yes. And I love the the way Gina Davis played her as well. That um, there's a a self confidence and a maturity to the way her character comes across, given that she's surrounded by people who are very youthful and often see the world through sort of slightly naive eyes. I think Huntara was there for that that um, element of it's not quite cynicism but there's more of a a worldly I have seen the harm that will get done and I'd rather not be a part of any of it mm. well I think she kind of acts as sort of like Adora's closest proxy in a lot of ways because she sort of has all the training that, that Adora did and went away from the horde when she realized that they were evil, but didn't have Glimmer and Bo and the transformation to She-Ra to make her really a part of the princess uh, group. So she had to go out on her own and find a whole world for herself. Mm. And Adora, as soon as she meets Antara, is like, we have to get her on the team because she's awesome. <laughs> she definitely has a Han Solo sort of vibe, you know, mm. the, uh, mm-hmm. the the thief with a heart of gold. Yeah, the, the soldier of fortune. Uh, Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, thieves code, thieves honor sort of idea. Yeah, yeah. I was going to bring that up too, actually. I, I think that she brings a fresh perspective to the show because so many, other, so, so many of the other characters are very connected to what side they're on, whether that's the princesses and their, their rebellion or each one in their perspective region or the horde and all of its followers. I, I feel like she's... Yes, she is indicative of her area as well, but it's more opportunistic and like it's more of a logical, it's a logic based survival trait where she's reacting to things and making the best decision based on the events that are unfolding. So whenever she actually does agree to join, 
it makes it, it brought uh, joy to my heart because it was like, yeah, this this is a person whose ideology is is so far removed from the princesses, but yet she still sees the value in what they're doing, and she's able to again offer newness um, to their fight. Micah and Caster Speller would appear to be the last two. Um, Micah, I don't actually think adds a lot to the story in terms of him coming back. Hence but to me, lost. It, it, it yes, uh, and uh, but to me, it showed that they really cared about the characters. It's almost like they brought Micah back to apologize to Glimmer for killing her mother. <laughs> okay, I mean, a don't... little bit. I still like that he comes back, though. <laughs> like, I, I can't help but say, like, oh, that that's kind of nice that even though, you know, even though Glimmer loses Angela, she still has her father to look forward to. And he's he's just so, he's such a powerhouse that it's cool that they get this little, like, right at the end, it's like, hey, we've got this real ace up our sleeves with Micah, which, of course, he then, you know, gets infected and everything. But for, for that little bit of time, it's like, we kind of have the upper hand because Micah kind of kicks all kinds of butt in the in the magic uh, department there. Mm. I think for me, he represented a bit of a, a meta element, which was about trusting the show. Because from the moment he turned up on Beast Island, there was a part of my brain that was going, they've only brought him back to kill him again. They've only brought him back to kill him again Just so that they can Glimmer evoke hurt. more tragedy for Glimmer. And then mm. they totally didn't do that. And it it kind of made my heart grow three sizes. <laughs> they used him mostly to show the like leaps and bounds that Glimmer had done because she suddenly became a better magician than her father. Yeah, and he remembers her as being this little girl as well. He struck me as a moments character where he he would be there for these really great moments. For example, when he poses as She-Ra, which, by the way, I'm really, like, hoping to see some, you know, daddies dress up as in the future. Yeah. But um, <laughs> and I, I also, you know, there's the moment where he's he's possessed towards the end and there's the real threat of his magic that was very visually impressive so i enjoyed moments but i just don't think that um he had a lot of staying power as a character versus we've been with most of the other cast for five seasons and got got to know them a bit more could you have taken more of this did it feel like no it's perfect end it now or did you feel like no we need more you've only just started I mean, if nothing else, just it's been so such a short amount of time between when it started and when it finished. Like I said, nineteen months. Yeah, I think they kept the length pretty much to to where it needed to be. Honestly, um, maybe, I, and I know some of the seasons were shorter than others. I'm not really sure what the decision was around that, but I think they, the, as far as doling out the story and and you know time managing with within the the you know the different seasons that they wanted to have they did a pretty good job with giving us just enough but not too much that we're like you feel like there's a bunch of filler episodes i do think that they ended it really well and you feel like there could be a sequel but you're left to just imagine that and mm. make your own. I I did feel like if there was another season or like a, a half season or something, it would be more of an epilogue than a, a continuation because I, I almost like I'm still breathing hard from the last lot. I don't think I can take another build-up to a massive um, culmination of story. Yeah. 
one of my biggest complaints of a lot of series is that they don't know when to end or what story they exactly want to tell. This is very succinct. Mm -hmm. They seem to know what story they wanted to tell from the beginning. They told it. And while some pacing might have worked a little better, uh, you know, they did the best they could with the time they had and ended it very cleanly. But if you need a little bit more... There, it, I'm just going to tell you the way to find it because I don't actually know the title. There's, and it's, it's. I know that fan fiction. When you say fan fiction, it can be there's connotations there and expectations. But this one is just about the characters, and it's actually by the um, the creator of the show. If you type in, you know, her name, Noel, and fan fiction, it'll be one of the first things that comes up because there was a lot of speculation. She was a little coy about it being hers, but basically, there's an extra scene that takes place on the shuttle that they're taking back to Etheria after they rescue Catra from Horde Prime. And there's there are a few conversations, particularly between Adora and Catra, but also Catra and Entrapta, that sort of go deeper into this forgiveness aspect of atoning for past deeds, because part of what some people were, I think, criticizing about the show is that we didn't get enough time with them dealing with their mistakes. I would argue that we did, but it's just a little extra for people who wanted more of um, Adora and Katra, you know, stuff where they're trying to work towards trusting each other again. There's just a little bit more. And, and so you might enjoy, you might enjoy that. Cool. Thank you for the tip. We'll make sure to check it out. Okay. Uh, and because you've all been so absolutely awesome, I'm going to give you five more minutes to express any other thoughts on She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, and then we're done. I do know that Caster Speller, she was basically the rest of the heart and the bounce of the of Glimmer's father side of the family. Mm. Like, she was the one that she... <laughs> She always nannied over Glimmer, if that's the right term. Like, mm. she always treated her like her little angel. Yeah. I always felt like Cassis Fellow was almost like the black sheep of the family. She was always outshone by Micah or Jella or all the others around her. And we actually see her probably in the best position she's ever been in at the start of the series. And then it shows just, like, where she is compared to everybody. My roommate is a queer animator. She's very, very talented. And she fell into this show like a beautiful bed filled with the most fluffy cushions, almost like Glimmer's bed. Just like, I mean, she absolutely (laughs) relished everything because it felt like she was being seen. And that's one of the things that she she expresses to me when she sends me fan art that she's people talking about the show and how much it means to them. She she goes Colin, look, like this is look, there there's work out there for people like me. There's there's a place for my art and there's there's a real opportunity for me to, to write things like this. And it since inspired her to start working on a fantasy series of her own. And I just I'm I'm so proud of Noelle and for all the creators behind She-Ra because it does matter that we see people like this. It does matter that we see genuinely uh positive reflections of people who do represent the LGBTQ community and also just in general, there there's a lot for everyone in the show. It's also not exclusory. So I I love, 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 love everything that they they wrote into the show. I think that it's it's got such a beautiful way of 
understating some of the core values that people maybe in this day and age really need to get in touch with because there's a lot of pain right now. And so anybody out there who hasn't, I guess they would certainly have <laughs> watched the show if they're listening to this. I don't know. But I mean, if you haven't, definitely on it because it can make you feel a little bit better after watching it. Just a, an aside on um glimmer's bed she has a little cuddly cowl mm. and cowl is a character from the original show and i just well, when i saw that i was like oh they got a cowl in there thing or something <laughs> yes okay he flies okay. with his ears yeah oh uh holly one thing that this series i think has done better than almost any other one i've ever watched that promotes the lgbt like community is that it's not about LGBT plus community. Like as much Mm -hmm. as I love, you know, Korra, uh, like the, the, uh, avatar Korra series, uh, it kind of just, it does this big spotlight of, we have a gay character ending. Whereas in this, Mm. there's not a spotlight. These are just the people. They make it very normal and natural. And this is just how it is. Uh, and that's something that most shows that dip into like this, these sort of situations, they make it about that mm. instead of just having that be part of it. Yeah, they normalize it in the same way as uh, Bo's two dads. It's just like the more kids just sort of see this and it's like, oh, OK, two dads, carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, they don't always necessarily get on and they're two different types of guy and like being gay doesn't make you one particular type of person. It's just the more kids can just see that and just have it be like, oh, OK, carry on. Mm-hmm. I- it's the more acceptance of the rainbow. and All of the colors are made out of light and light is made out of the rainbow, which means every Everything is gay. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay. and I just said that... Big bumper stickers, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said that ultimately to, to see things only in black and white, only in, in like, you know, everything should be precisely in this particular um, way forward is a really blinkered way of, of seeing things. And it's boring. And the more shows that are just like, hey, loads of stuff, uh, the the more, you know, this doesn't become something which is like, is it controversial that this happened? And like, oh, look, Pixar had one female cop mention that she has a girlfriend. Shall we all praise Pixar? Mm. I think a lot of <laughs> no. that... No. No. A That's, lot of that... Fuck all. No. <laughs> I do admire the fact that Cora and Asami got to hold hands so that Katra and Shiwa could have this... And we are moving forwards. And thanks to Steven Universe doing a, a hell of a lot of the groundwork as well. Mm. Um, it just means that the next 10 years are going to be even cooler. Yeah, I think a big part of it, though, is queer creators mm. in in large numbers. You know, it's our, our artistic, creative environments need lots and lots of different perspectives to make them uh, make them feel inclusive. And it's I think it's the difference between having a team who says, right, we're going to have this uh, this gay couple and it's going to be significant and momentous and it's going to have an impact on the kids and we have to make sure it's framed in a way that they will accept and understand and having a team who goes, well, I'm going to do this character because she's my wife. My wife? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and on that Borat bombshell... (laughs) Good Lord, okay. Um... Before we go, back in early 2016, as I mentioned earlier, Sharon and I recorded an episode on Masters of the Universe and the original She-Ra. 
That was while I was in the planning stages of The Princess Thieves. I had given up hope of She-Ra ever being brought back in the right way, with all talk of a David Goya-penned He-Man movie directed by two first-timers. It just seemed unfeasible. So I evoked the flavour of some of the core elements of Adora's origin story from the original series and reworked it into a gender-flipped King Arthur crossed with Robin Hood, since seemingly nobody could get those right either. Those new to our show won't have heard this trailer before. It's for the Princess Thieves audiobook, which is available right now on Bandcamp. And any sales of this or any of my other audiobooks on there, over at least July and August this year, every penny I make will be donated to a pair of Black Lives Matter-related charities, in keeping with the spirit of looking out for the people who need it the most that beats at the heart of this story. Stand and deliver! Okay, Thin White Duke, prepare to have a thrilling story of a brush with death to tell all your high society friends. Because you are, as of now, being held up by Robin of the Hood. You blaggards! Are you really Robin of Loxley? Yes, I certainly am. Necklace and brooch, please, milady. I thought he died a thousand years ago. This fellow's an imposter. Oh, what an adorable child. Well, you tell all your little friends. Robin Hood is back. Watchmen come and rob. Oh, yuck. It's a filthy great archer. <laughs> right, that's us. There's a snap in the air. Can you smell it? No, just cat. I caught it when you opened the window. Out there, my darling. Out there, adventure is waiting for us. Through the cobblestone streets of London, past dark alleyways where dark plots are hatched every minute. Ugh, we've talked about this. We agreed that last time really would be the last. You could have been seen, kidnapped, killed. I'm not talking about sneaking out of the fights. I mean to go beyond the alleyways, sneak further, to the outskirts of London and beyond that and further still, out into the wild countryside. There we shall find the real world, and the real people far from these boring courtiers, silk sheaths, and poxy-jeweled eggs. That's where I want to roam. You're forgetting, Gwen. I came from the real world, as you put it. I know exactly what sort of person lives there, and it's nobody you want to meet. Well, that wasn't just any woman. It was Princess Gwendolyn. You're out of your mind. Somehow, she's out and about in London, and she likes a fight. I can't believe you're about to say what I'm pretty sure you're about to say. I'm definitely about to say it. I can't believe it. Royal kidnap. She's right there for the taking. Have you any idea how much gold we could get? Excuse me, your majesty. Frightfully sorry to have to do this, but I'm going to have to ask you two to come with me. <laughs> Christ! Stand still. No, you'll hit me. You little rats. That's hurtful. Honestly, this isn't going at all how I planned. I never knew you could do this. I was watching you fight earlier. You're amazing. I mean, for a girl. Come on, calm down. I promise I won't kidnap you. I can't. Come here. You've won, princess. You can escape now. I don't want to escape. I want you brought to justice. Uh, that 
go of me. No. Let go of me. No. Please? Oh, all right. Really? No. Find my daughter. Bring her back to me. Well, what if things get very difficult? I want those responsible punished in ways that haunt the nightmares of all who learn of their fate. Do you know where you are, girl? Camelot. Yes. The sword is here. May I see it? Please. Of course you can, love. It's the first thing most people go to. You know, I kind of hoped you'd be the one to pull the sword from the stone. Somebody has to save this city. Oh, sod it. I thought that would work. Would you like to see an interesting horse before you go? Yes. Then follow me. Oh, aren't you a handsome thing? Piss off. Oh. I know when I'm being patronized. Meg, don't waste my time again this week. This is a princess of England. Could you be nice just this once? Nope. It talks. Yes. If you succeed in convincing him to stop, tell me how. Give him this. Thank you. Would you like this apple? Red apples given to princesses by strange old ladies? No, I bloody wouldn't. Do you have a sandwich? So how did you come to learn to talk? It really is a very remarkable story. You see, at an early age, I was bitten by a radioactive linguist. Nag. I'm just a talking horse, all right? The Princess Thieves. A swashbuckling fantasy action comedy by Alexander Shaw. I am the Black Shuck. This is my city. And yet, architecturally speaking, it's really quite inconvenient sometimes. You know, when you're stalking the night as its dark bringer of justice. There we are. Now, don't worry, the twitching will stop in a bit. Yes, it's horrible, isn't it? Shush now. We're going to take a trip to the nice people at the Tower of London. You've been causing the watch quite a bit of exasperation. It's not who I am under this mask, but who I am when I'm in the mask when... Oh, my legs! My legs! Oh, the back! The back as well! The New Century Multiverse and School of Movies are funded by Patreon. And as always, thank you very much to our top tier $15 supporters who get sponsor credit every week. Thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Bai, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner. Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joga Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm.
So yeah, long story short, we created and released The Princess Thieves in 2016. And then two years later, She-Ra did get delivered right. And I could not be happier. So before we go, let me ask our guests, where can people find you and your stuff? We'll start with Holly. Uh, I stream on Twitch, twitch.tv slash incorrectdigit. Mel. I do review and writing and talking about video games for Nintendad. Colin. I occasionally do podcasts on SoundCloud under the Cinema Cephalopod, but I haven't done one in like, I don't know, a long time. Lauren. I play flute in Toronto. (laughs) Go to Toronto and see her. (laughs) Want to see the Quintagious Quintet? That's me. And Maya. I would just like to mention that if you have HBO in any of its streaming formats, Doom Patrol is on there now, and they just dropped the first episode of their second season, which you can actually see my fiancé in on that first episode. I will be appearing throughout, uh, kind of peppered throughout the rest of season two. I was in a lot of season one as well. And I would also mention that though it is a very, very different show from She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, it is also extremely LGBTQ plus friendly. And it's got a very, uh, weirdly, a very similar kind of inclusive message in it. So if you're looking for something more on the adult side of things that goes kind of weird but also has a very emotional core similar to the kind of things that Shirod talks about I highly recommend Doom Patrol that is all we've got time for with Shiro and the Princesses of Power. We could speculate on what's next. Uh, at, at some point, I would simply posit something this popular is likely to return in some form and sooner than we might expect. Huge thanks to our guests this week. Lauren Yeomans. Glad to be here. Mel Curtis. It was a fun time. Colin of the Cinema Cephalopod. Ride that rainbow, baby. Holly Dotson. Thank you for having me. Maya Santandrea. The pleasure. Lyra Shaw. Adventure! <laughs> and thank you to Sharon Shaw. And to this episode's sponsors, Zach Malm, Carsten Immel, and James Glass. We will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And I've been Lyra Shaw. And School's, School's Out. We're Like the sun We must be strong We must be strong
Nothing's gonna get in our way Ooh. 